you the real MVP. Blocked by James. I'm Michael Jordan. Stop it. Get some help. He's on fire. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Hello and welcome to Two Guys, One Hoop. My name is Brian Stevens, and with me once again is... Jalen Dixon, how's everybody doing? Jay, you got a bunch of stuff going on right now. Um, so let's just give you the, the floor and let you, you plug your work right now. Man... You're you're not kidding. The Routine Jumper podcast has been on and off, but I'm trying to get back to a level of consistency, at least bare minimum once a week. But now that the playoffs is here, trying to get my tail back in gear and get those two episodes a week out. Doing the Hit Your Free Throws podcast with my friend TV, a.k.a. TV on basketball. That's been consistent, thankfully. That's been every week, every uh, either Tuesday or Wednesday that's coming out. Um, I've been doing work for this website called Prediction Strike, which is basically like a stock market for um, for athletics, whether it be basketball, MMA, football, whatever the case is. I've been doing a newsletter for them. I've been all over the place, man. I'm not even going to lie. I even just did like an NCAA podcast like at the beginning of March Madness, and I felt pretty good about my picks, and UConn went a lot further than I was even giving them credit for. So <laughs> just been floating around all over the place, man. Yeah, you got uh, you got a lot of irons in the fire. Uh, definitely recommend checking out the Routine Jumper. And uh, if you like if you like this podcast or if you like anything that, that basically to do with us, um, definitely check out Jay's other podcast and his other work for sure. Um, we got a pretty robust podcast here for you today. Um, basically, we're going to talk uh, – uh, not necessarily a recap of the season, but kind of a recap. I mean, we're almost there. Uh, I thought about, um, honestly, I almost postponed this podcast to next week until we knew what was going to happen with the play-in stuff. But I'm pretty confident the uh, it's going to shake out um, pretty much pr- pretty much the way that it is right now. I, I mean, there's a chance that Dallas could sneak in, and we'll, we'll talk about those in, in a minute. But um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna briefly jump into the CBA here in a second, but then we're going to talk about our biggest disappointments, our biggest surprises, give our awards picks, and then throw in some playoff predictions uh, and just kind of break down the season a little bit. Maybe after the championship, after in June, maybe we'll have a recap of, of our thoughts on the, the whole season. Uh, I briefly wanted to bring this up to you. Um, so I went and I, I listened to our, uh, our preseason podcast where we did overs and unders. And um, we were pretty spot on. There were a few. Okay, we're going to talk about Dallas in a minute and disappointments, but I think that was the one that we missed the most on. But you know what? So did a lot of other people. Let me just say that <laughs> we're not the only ones, right? Um, but we we hit it pretty good. We we did a pretty good job. I feel like um, I don't know if you remember that podcast or if you listened to it, but um, it's it was kind of fun to go back and listen to. Yeah, that's one of those podcasts where I think the, our main philosophy where we, well, obviously, we weren't taking into account a lot of fluctuation at the trade deadline. We definitely got the, the apple cart upset in that yeah. regard because I don't think either one of us really anticipated a ton of movement, especially with some of the players that were being mentioned. I think Kyrie was the only person that me and you had a ton of real discourse about mm-hmm. in terms of the potential of it moving. Kyrie and Russell Westbrook, obviously, but yeah. those guys were kind of 
joint at the hip in terms of that conversation. So exactly. Those yeah. were kind of the big links. But when you look at everything else that we discussed, I mean, you know, even on my podcast, when me and you discussed, the only other guy that was even up for conversation was Kevin Durant. And yeah. granted, he ended up where me and you kind of figured he yeah. would, but not under the kind of circumstances no. that we thought he would. And that's kind of been one of the other like big storylines for this year when you focus on things like over under because a lot of the things that just it's just a lot of things that we didn't anticipate this year. With the biggest one, Brian, I mean, the the most improved player race is insane for a reason. It's yeah. because the stat inflation era is kicked <laughs> off in in the craziest way yeah. possible. I mean, literally, literally averaging twenty points per game is like not even impressive in yeah. this league anymore. And that's kind of been one of the biggest influences, like on how crazy this this year has been from right. a parity standpoint. Yeah, and we talked about that a little bit too, but prior to the season, we talked about how if we went back a decade and looked at how many twenty point scores there were versus uh, last year, even it was like yeah. there was like ten, I think, and uh, there was like twenty eight or something crazy uh, at some point this year. I don't know what it is right now, yeah. but at some point it got all the way up to twenty eight. Um, all right, so let's let's hop right into this. Let's talk about the CBA. We're not going to like dig into like numbers or anything like that, but there was a few <laughs> little things that I thought was interesting, um, and the reason I really wanted to talk about it is the awards part part of this, um, and we'll get to our awards um, at the at the end of the, or towards the end of the podcast. But I always have, and I said this preseason, I said it last year to you. One of my biggest things is was games played, and I had set that number at like significantly lower than what's in the CBA. So the CBA says in order to be eligible for uh, any postseason award, they have to play 65 games, um, which, you know, I said it at like 50, I think 58 was my number because it was like 80% or close to 80%, and I got to go do the math. Uh, but it was, um, yeah, uh, let's see. Sorry, I'm, I'm doing math on the fly here. Um, but, yeah, uh, so I, no, seven, that's 70%. Uh, maybe I can't remember what I said it was. Maybe it was 60. I don't remember. But 65 games is now you have to play 65 games to be eligible for uh, NBA postseason awards or NBA season awards. What are your thoughts on that? So I think there's um... – there's two stories to that. The first story is this is a way to make the voting process a lot easier from not just a media standpoint, but I think from a discourse standpoint in terms of how we discuss yeah. mainly MVP. If we're going to be honest, Brian, like this year from an award standpoint is not as exciting as years past, but the the volatility, I think, is the only word I could use when it comes to the the, the MVP race has gotten kind of out of hand and it's kind of based off the fact that there's still no real set criteria for these awards and i listened to um the dunked on podcast recently and they were discussing this uh, this premise in terms of the 65 games and one of the things that was brought up was the idea that the only time that we've ever really gotten an mvp wrong was when it was narrative driven yeah. And unfortunately, that's part of the lack of parameters that have been set in years past is maybe that maybe the guy who won wasn't necessarily the wrong choice for the fact that he didn't produce well enough to be an MVP candidate. But maybe the reasoning in which he won wasn't strictly based off his value or what the stats tell you in terms of what he was able to accomplish in that given season. So I think 65 games as a threshold, first of all, for just consideration is a good way to kind of narrow the playing field. Um, to an extent, but I also think it's kind of it acts as the tiebreaker in situations like these because the issue we've had for the last two straight MVPs in particular 
has been games yeah. played being the largest discrepancy, yep. right? Yep. Because I feel like the, the the games played ideology for for a guy like Joel Embiid actually has hindered him. Hundred percent, yeah. Because if you listen to most people, Joel Embiid on a per minute basis has been considered as the MVP. Yep. Right. Yeah. But from an overall total body of work standpoint, that's where the Jokic stuff leans. And mm-hmm. also, there's a couple of other things that I think obviously factor in with leaning towards Jokic. But the per minute MVP thing has always seemed to be in Joel Embiid's favor. I think this is a way to kind of split that down the middle and say, look, I understand there's a level of dominance here. I also feel like there's a level of dominance here. But if you don't pass this threshold, you're not in the conversation. If you look down the list just now, based off your 65 games, Damian Lillard can't be considered. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry, LeBron James, Kevin Durant. These are big names that yeah. you won't even bring up. Yep. If we use this threshold, I, I, it's it's that's the that's the first portion of the story. The second part of it is again player centric. It's kind of that idea that these guys can paint for themselves what they want. Doc Rivers can say Joel Embiid's got this thing locked up, but if you look at the sixty-five games aspect of it, Joel Embiid wouldn't even thoroughly be in the convo so it's another way to kind of put players in a position of okay so how much does this load management thing matter to you yeah okay how much does taking care of your body in the offseason in order to be able to endure an 82 game season matter to you it kind of provides that incentive as well i i totally agree and so i'm gonna bring some history to this um because this is i this is something i dug into a lot because like i i you know you hear like uh, games played matters uh, and, and to a certain extent, I think that um, it's always mattered, but people haven't had to really deal with this because of the player, the um, the um, game management that we see now, the the minutes and as well games played is become a bigger issue with the the the, the like some of those stars and you know like Steph and Katie miss because of injury and LeBron miss injury, but like you know Kawhi played his first back-to-back in two years, um, you know, and so it's like, and he did that by setting out the second half of, of a game, right? So, but, like, if you look at MVP, so here, I'm going all the way back um, to 1950s here, right? So, Ooh, if okay. you, I'm going to, ex- so we're excluding Carl Malone, LeBron, Giannis, because in 80, uh, two of those were, um, strike or lockout shortened seasons. One was the uh, season that was shortened by COVID, uh, uh, there's only been one MVP to play less than 60 games, and that was Bill Walton. He played 58 games in 1977-78 season. Since basically then, since, since basically since the 60s, right, um, the fewest played games by an MVP was Allen Iverson in 2000-2001, and he played 71 games. So wrap your mind around that. Like that is kind of why – you know, this I think is now an issue is that we have potentially an MVP uh, in Embiid, depending on how the season falls. Um, and Jokic, Jokic has missed time this year. Giannis has missed time. So it's became less of an issue. But at the same time, like people were playing 70 plus games in order to be the MVP. And I think that's why we're seeing it now is because the the, the, the other part of this is, you know, a lot of fans and even like, you know, Charles Barkley has been a huge outspoken critic of this of saying, like, think about you taking your kid. If you let's say that you, you know, you live in San Antonio, right? You you, you only you only get to see Jason Tatum, uh, Giannis, 
once a once a year, right? They come to San Antonio one time, and your team sucks, and so they're like, you know, we're not going to play tonight. We got a back to back with Houston tomorrow. Both these teams suck. We're just gonna we're we're gonna rest Tatum tonight, and we'll 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 rest Brown tomorrow. We're still gonna win this game because this team suck. Well, you're not gonna get to watch this player play. Uh, he also mentioned like when the Suns um, were really good, and uh, they were going to Chicago to play Chicago, and they got up for that game. You know, obviously they would end up meeting in the finals later on that year, but this was like they were getting up for this game because this was the only time they were going to Chicago. They wanted to, to, to beat them on their home court. And so the entire team got up and, you know, it, he said it felt like a, a playoff game and you don't really see that intensity in the middle of the season anymore. And I think it's because of load management and stuff like that. So I actually think this is good because I think it's going to force players to play in games that they might normally miss. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of cap on that, I just think that overall, Brian, between the stat inflation, the overall load management implementation across the league, and just the kind of AAU environment that's kind of been established within the NBA over the last couple of years from a play style standpoint with all the running gun and, you know, all that stuff. It's we're kind of just in an era where we have to create more competitive basketball through an 82 game season if the plan is to keep. 82 games right. as part of the regular season. Yep. That's that's the big thing about it because from a viewership standpoint and stuff like that, that's the hard consumer aspect is, yes, 82 games gives fans a ton of opportunities to see their teams, but there's a ton of meaningless games in there mm-hmm. which kind of devalues the fact that there's so many games in the first place. And that's only been established recently based on some of these other implementations that have taken place that have allowed guys to kind of make the regular season matter a lot less. That The Clippers, you mentioned this with Kawhi Leonard, but the Clippers are just notorious for kind of abusing yeah. the regular season in, in, in its totality mm-hmm. by being a team that just simply views themselves <laughs> as, as long as we make the postseason, right. yeah. we'll be all right. Yeah. Now, the weird thing about that is they haven't learned their lesson because there's two times in particular where they ran into buzz saws or at least put themselves in a bad position yeah. by waiting until the postseason to quote-unquote ramp it up. But that's the, but other than that, they're kind of an exception from the rule, exception to the rule in terms of how it's outstandingly crazy this stuff has gotten. But it does set a precedent to a certain idea, to a certain um, extent, where you look at it and you go, okay, man, look, this is getting kind of out of hand with how many guys are sitting and this, that, and the third. And like like you said beforehand, there just has to be a certain level of competitive balance within the regular season if there's gonna be 82 games. Otherwise. We might really need, and I, the CBA is not being adjusted again for another six to seven years. Right. It's done is done now, right? But we might have to really consider the idea of lowering the amount of games if load management is still going to be up and kicking even past something like this. Yeah, and yeah, and I think on top of that, um, so this is something that uh, we don't have. There's nothing to really talk about with this because we don't know details. But there's going to be an in-season tournament, and so. Obviously, those games are either going to be tacked on to the existing schedule or those games will be... I don't know how that's going to work, right? So, you know, this is kind of one of those things where are we going to see, like, what what does this mean? Are we going to see players opt out? You know, are we going to see basically, you know, the Lakers without LeBron and AD uh, facing uh, Houston, right? Like, I don't know what this is going to look like. Is it going to look like real NBA? Um, because we just don't know. 
Um, but I think that there, are, like, there are some good moves that were made in the CBA overall, um, like being able to let players have minority stake in ownership, like that kind of stuff. I think really helps uh, further the league as a standard bearer for other professional leagues and what they should be uh, doing. Um, I think that at times the NBA could be accused of letting the players kind of control the league a little too much, especially since Adam Silver took over. Um, but I think the CBA was a was a good it was, honestly, in my opinion, it was a good compromise by everybody. Um, and you know, uh, he the the thing interesting thing about this too, we've talked about it a lot of times, is he mentioned uh, in his press conference that essentially expansions happening we talked about this before it looks like seattle and, and vegas are getting teams like those are going to probably be the chosen cities in the next couple of years so it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out too so yeah, yeah. uh all right so that's it for the cb anything else you want to say about the cba i mean i got, just to kind of piggyback off the last point you made in terms of just like the overall agreements between the players and the owners i think this was like a player friendly cba which we don't see often because typically when you walk away from a cba it does seem like it's more um lean in favor of the owners but i think things like being able to have stock equity within the teams yeah. that's something great that i think is is very valuable considering the crazy spike in value of all these teams across the league um in recent years that's huge i think um the supermax killer in terms of some of the things in terms of contract extensions is something that i think reestablishes a certain level of competitive balance and also incentivizes internal development because it makes yeah. you want to work better on improving the guys within your own camp because it's going to incentivize you to want to throw your money at guys that are already in your program as mm -hmm. opposed to trying to go out in free agency. It also just alleviates certain issues. Some of the things that were brought in CBA just alleviate certain issues like the amount of uh, max rookie extension guys you can have on a roster. Yeah. For example, the Jalen Brown rule, I think is basically yep. what they called it, that was going to end up affecting guys like Evan Mobley, who is mm -hmm. on a team with Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, for example, in terms of that. And um, OG Ananobi is another guy yep. that obviously is going to be directly affected by something like this in terms of like now it being more in his favor for what he can be offered. I just think that when you look across the board, this CBA provided opportunities for the players to just be able to be more involved, but also still do so in a way that establishes competitive balance. And I think the most underrated portion of the CBA actually, to me personally, was the establishment of more two-way roster spots. Yeah. Um, this was a shout-out to the G League and then some. And I think that's so, that's so important because a lot of people kind of let the 2020 season flow over their head. But we could not stop seeing graphics and bringing up statistics of how many guys were coming up from the G League to help essentially keep the yeah. league afloat when they were dealing with a lot of the COVID absences and issues in regards to that. Absolutely. And we have a lot of guys from that G League program now that are playing on playoff teams, playing at a high level, or at least being very productive within the roles that they've had. Guys like Gabe Vincent, Max mm -hmm. Cruz, Duncan Robinson got a contract. I'm just talking heat guys, but there's a handful of guys across the league that were able to establish themselves in the G League, get a two-way contract, and put themselves in a serious position to go between the big boy roster and the smaller roster and prove on a night-to-night -night basis that they were worth a little bit more yeah. than obviously what the G League provides. But I think getting those 
extra two-way spots to all the teams, it also provides more opportunity for that G League to expand upon what it already is because guys view that as a realistic portal to the big league. They view it as a realistic portal to being able to see real NBA minutes. And like I said, I just feel like that, that is one of the biggest kudos that this CBA has because I think that this this league is deserving of that, right? I think yeah. that the D League has been, the G League going back to the D League days, right, yeah. has been one of the most experimental versions of um, developmental athletics that we've seen in the entire NBA, I mean, in the entire sports world, whether it be the minor leagues in baseball, the, mm-hmm. XF, uh, the XFL for football, and so on and so forth. But I think this is another step for the NBA to prove or show that they have an elite funnel system when actually um invested in it 100% yeah and it, it was something that was needed for a long time and you know a lot of a lot of teams relied on you know players either you know going to Greece or Spain or China and developing there and you just don't get the same coaching and the same camaraderie uh, and you know, it's a lot hard, a lot harder to work out those contracts, right? So, like, if you, you know, if you're in China, uh, and you're, I'm just making this up. Let's say that, um, you know, Austin Reeves was playing for China, and you know, the Lakers were like, "Wow, well, we want to, we want to bring him over mid-season." Well, you had to buy out a contract if he wasn't in the draft. Like, there's just there's a lot of things, right? Now, uh, you, you you don't get drafted by a team, or maybe you do get drafted by a team. They designate you to the G League. They can call you back up. Like, there are just a lot of big things that the NBA was missing in terms of, like you said, player development. And there's a big difference being around NBA coaches and being around coaches that, you know, are good coaches, but they're not, they're not elite. Right. So mm-hmm. I agree with you. That's a, it's a good point. Uh, and I, I, what I'm hoping for is an expansion of the G league as well. I'm hoping to see, um, you know, some, some, some basically maybe, I don't know how they would do it. Maybe they make smaller leagues in, in, in regional areas or something like that. But, um, yeah, I'm I'm super stoked uh, about what's happening with that. All right, let's move on to um, <clears throat> our biggest disappointments of the year. And we talked about Dallas previously, so I'm going to start this off pretty big because I think we both can say that we are disappointed in Dallas. We both both thought that they would be at least probably a top four Western Conference team, maybe top five. Uh, I think we both picked them to go over, and not only did they go under. But they may not even make the play in. That you can't. Uh, this season could not have went worse. I don't think for Dallas, with the, barring a terrible injury to Luca. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on this team right now, Brian? The way I've tried to contextualize it over the last couple of days, because it's kind of it's been a little bit of a science experiment in terms of just trying to put together how we got here and what could have been done differently. The truth is that this, unfortunately, was probably inevitable, and I don't think that we all wanted to give the the tea leaves its credit, right? I think this goes all the way back to their mishandling of the Jalen Brunson situation. This dates all the way back to that. The unfortunate thing about establishing ill will with players is that it puts you in a position where eventually it will come back to bite you. And in this case... Jalen Brunson was arguably, not arguably, he was the second best player on that Western Conference Finals run for the Dallas Mavericks. Unexcusably so. And I think that the 
situation with Jalen Brunson was he was being considered as undervalued leading up to that postseason. And the worst thing you could have let him do, and I think we had this conversation, Brian, during the recaps. The worst thing you could let Jalen Brunson do is be in a contract year, already have given him two offers that were lowballing him, and then let him ball out. That was the worst potential opportunity for you to allow that to happen. And then on top of that, the New York Knicks positioning themselves the way they did in a lot of different ways involving the dad and different things like that that obviously aren't as NBA friendly, but still things that were able to manipulate the decision put you in a position this offseason to now be down your second best player, which is already starting behind the eight ball for a team that does not have a ton of cap flexibility as it is, right? Then you do something that most of the time we criticize other teams, typically the glamour market teams, for doing, which is gutting your roster midway through the season with the anticipation that putting two stars together will lead to having an elite postseason run because at the end of the day, stars are the ones that win championships, or at least that's our philosophy most of the time. So with that being the case... This was one of those things where you got rid of your best defender yep. in Dorian Finney-Smith. You got rid of a solid ball handler and a guy who was having like a really strong couple of seasons in terms of what he was able to do in the Dal- with the Dallas Mavericks and Spencer Dinwiddie. Mm-hmm. And obviously more draft capital, which the Dallas Mavericks already don't have a ton of um, as it is. Mm-hmm. So I just think that the toughest part for Dallas is... Brian, they can't win. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a tough situation because the Luka Doncic effect works in both ways. They're too good to get draft picks, and therefore yeah. it's hard to build around Luka. But then there's the Luka is so good that all you want to do is build a team that optimizes right. Luka. Yeah. Because that's the only way that he can that he can legitimately be raised to another level in terms of what they can do um, in terms of championship equity. So it's a lose-lose because no matter what, the Luka Doncic effect comes down to either he doesn't have enough help because they're not giving it to him or he doesn't have enough help because he's too good for them to be able to acquire yeah. it through the normal mediums of a team that has a superstar that's this useful. You know, I, I compare it a lot to the to the Cavs, um, the Cavs-LeBron, or the, you know, uh, LeBron's first stint with the Cavs where you know they tried you know meshing together this lineup of um, semi all-stars and a lot of potential players that you know fit well around what LeBron could do offensively and it never worked you know yeah they got to the finals but they got swept by the Spurs and then they were you know uh, exits the following few years after that and I think this is uh, kind of a parallel here and the reason I think it is is because the pro- the biggest problem with this trade is it was splashy and it wasn't centered on basketball, right? It it, it was like, oh, let's just put two stars together. You know, I think Jason Kidd even said uh, you're gonna have to s- score one thirty to beat us or something like that. Well, guess what? Teams are scoring one thirty night in and night out because Luca and Kyrie are not one putting effort in in. On defense, I mean, honestly, like they are both capable of better defense than what they've played. They're not playing good defense, and they have no rim protection. Javale McGee apparently is just unplayable, which I, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but they are not playing him right. And uh, they're using they're using Christian Wood in and, and, and just a weird way. There was times um, 
uh, when in the uh, Warriors game when Christian Wood was bringing the ball up the court, and I'm just thinking to myself, what what is happening right now? You're having Christian Wood initiate the offense. You're putting him in a really bad position to be the the main ball handler, and it just it doesn't make sense. I I, I listened to Zach Lowe throw the stat out there, and it just boggled my mind. Um, there have been a total of I th- and if I I think this is correct, I think it was nine percent of all possessions uh, were uh, Kyrie Luca pick and rolls. And the majority of those, um, all except for I think maybe it was like five, were Kyrie on ball pick and roll, or uh, sorry Kyrie setting the pick, which is baffling because Luca is six nine six ten you know two fifty he's got a body to set a pick. It just it's either a fundamental they don't want to do this or fundamentally Jason Kidd doesn't know what he's doing. Um, Jason Kidd has been known as a defensive coach. He had that team playing defense in the playoffs, but he doesn't have the players to do it now. So I, I honestly, I don't know what it, this team's future looks like. And you, you, you basically hit the lottery and got Luca, the best player in that draft. You know, he slipped to four somehow. You're able to pull off the Trey Young trade, and uh, somehow you're still going to end up being a loser because you're trying to build a team that scores 150 points a game. What? This I, I, yeah. I just don't get it. I don't get and it. Here, the, the, and here, the thing is, the, the best way that I've been able to make it make sense in terms of just why they've been so bad, the three points that I've tried to hit on are, one, they are the third slowest team in all of basketball. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this has been this way since the drafting of Luka Doncic. Yep. There was once upon a time where I think people blamed Rick Carlisle yeah. for them being as slow as they did. But if you see what Rick has been able to do in Indiana, and granted, that is also kudos to Tyrese Halliburton. But if you've seen what he's been able to do in Indiana, there is a willingness to play more up-tempo. So I don't think it's that. Well, can, I, can, I, can I stop so you right there and yeah. say something? Uh, so here's the thing. Uh, Rick Carlisle is a no nonsense coach, right? He didn't get along with um, uh, uh, Rondo because Rondo thought he knew better than than Rick Carlisle, right? He, he's got hasn't gotten along with certain point guards because he wants control of the team. There is mm-hmm. no question in my mind that Luca didn't like him because he was in the ear. And the reverse of that is, I think we've seen. Halliburton willing to listen to this coach, w- willing to play the style of basketball that Carlisle wants. And so that to me is a big factor. And, and I think it says a lot about who Luca is as a person and as a player, but sorry, didn't mean, I just want to put that in there. No, I think that's a great point because I also think this is kind of separate from the three things. Also, Luke Doncic's attitude, especially towards the back end of this season, has been a big talking point in terms of his leadership style or lack thereof, his overall commitment to the floor in terms of not just the defense, but just kind of his commitment in general. You can see that his energy level is down. He's mm-hmm. mentioned kind of the idea that there's a lot of other things going on that is kind of separate from basketball, yet has uh, afflicted some kind of um, – you know, damage to him psychologically. I hate to kind of phrase it that way, but it kind of just seems like Luka Doncic is out of it. Yeah. And if Luka Doncic is out of it on a team that is built kind of as Luka Doncic and the the Luka Doncic-ets, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Then mm-hmm. the, the, the lead singer in this case has to be on point. He has to be, right? Yeah. And so 
But kind of going back to the three things, like I said, they're the third slowest team in basketball, and that has a lot to do with the isolation and the my turn, your turn stuff and a lot of reliance on Luka Doncic and iso ball. The, the other thing is the iso ball also shows up in the fact that they are second to last in terms of assists per game as a team. Yeah. That shows in their isolation play that it basically is punching the rock between Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving and mainly Luka Doncic all season. And I think the the third thing and the kind of like the most important thing to me is that this team doesn't force turnovers. So mm. they're a team that like because that's one of the other things too. If you go in yeah. and you look at like the steals per game, they're in that same pocket, um, second to last in terms of steals forced per game. They're just a team that doesn't force turnovers they don't play really like together right. basketball and they play very slow that's a team that i'm sorry especially in the regular season is not viable for an 82 game stretch you right. have to be able to get easy baskets easy opportunities be able to get these other guys yeah. um under like you know in a rhythm and they have not been able to do that and the defensive regression is huge because that was the most underrated thing about last season for the Dallas Mavericks. We kept asking ourselves, like outside of Dorian Smith, who the Dorian, Dorian Finney Smith, who the heck is considered a yeah. defender on this team yep. for them to be a top five right. defense last yeah. year, right? And this year, this is this this goes back to what you mentioned in terms of the splash thing, and I think that was a great way to phrase it. The biggest issue with the acquisition of Kyrie Irving, besides all of these other three points, is this: you had Jalen Brunson, right? You get Spencer Dinwiddie as a serviceable guy that still fits within the, mm -hmm. the, the realm or the idea of what you had at Jalen Brunson, but maybe not for the price of Jalen Brunson and maybe not to the same skill level of Jalen Brunson. Now, you think that getting Kyrie Irving, who most people would uni universally uh, stamp as being better than both of those guys, yeah. is good enough of an upgrade at the point guard position to make up for losing Jalen Brunson, which you can't make up for, while also thinking that because he is the caliber of player that he is, that from a postseason perspective, he will also show out better than the other two guys you previously had. And that's just supposed to wipe away all right. the of yeah. past uh, transgressions, right? The only thing is, guess what? The thing you had with those two other guys to make up for all the fact that they are not as good as Kyrie Irving is the defensive personnel you yeah, and the yeah. depth that you had, and you cut it, and mm. that's that. That's the that's the killer. Unfortunately, I fell into this trap myself. I'm not coming onto this podcast and pretend like I wasn't one of those people that was beating the drum saying Luka Doncic is one of the best first quarter and fourth quarter mm -hmm. scores in the NBA. Kyrie Irving was one of the best um, scores in terms of the final minutes of yeah. the fourth quarter. Um, in the entire league, especially from a second-half scoring perspective. Yeah. These guys are the two best closers from a duo perspective in the entire league. If the game is even remotely close with these two guys on the floor, GGs, I don't think you're going to be able to take them out. That was my that was my mentality. So I'm not going to try to throw that under the rug. But there is a part of it that says, like you mentioned before, if the goal is to have to score 130 to beat everybody, I think a lot of teams are comfortable under those circumstances of, in this season in particular as co in compared to years past. And that's that's huge. 100%. Yep, you're right. Um, all right, so let's go back to you. I'm, I'm hitting the tennis ball back your way. The ball's in your court. What is one of your disappointments of the season? Man, 
I'd love to rag up my bulls right now, but I didn't have the craziest <laughs> of expectations as it was. So I'm not going to sit here and lie to you on that one. The Miami Heat, man. Mm, the yeah. Miami Heat were one of those teams that, bro, they're just one of those teams that personnel-wise, everybody's the same. They're just not playing as well as they played last year. Yeah. Max Struess isn't shooting the ball the way he did last year. Kyle Lowry is like just officially falling into like the shell of himself category. Right. Um, which sucks because kind of like Kyle Lowry, the player they eat when you look at the way they play on a night-to-night basis, ironically enough, the guy that would like just make this team make all sense is Kyle Lowry. It's just the fact that Kyle Lowry's not playing like the person that the Miami Heat thought they were acquiring. Yeah. Um, Duncan Robinson, we pointed this out all last postseason, at least in terms of the uh, the series where the Miami Heat were involved. Duncan Robinson is basically unplayable at this point. Mm-hmm. Um and they just i don't know man I, I miami falls into that that category without the similar pedigree but like they just have those kind of moments they fall into the category kind of with the golden state warriors that we have this weird false hope in them just off of just what we've seen them do in a in a postseason specifically jimmy butler right i think mm-hmm. our faith is in jimmy butler yeah. so much that we think no matter what between him and eric spolstra being on the bench you can't count out Miami no matter what right. you see on the floor. And that that's so contrad uh that's so contradictory to how we tend to address certain teams when it comes to their regular season success or lack thereof and how it translates to the postseason. Miami and Golden State are the two like poster childs of look, I know what we saw during the regular mm-hmm. season, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. My hope is that maybe that's what this is again for Miami because honestly they don't have really any more flexibility moving forward, right? They're one of the yeah. oldest teams in basketball. Right. They don't have a ton of cap flexibility despite the fact that they're one of the best cap flippers in the league. So maybe I'm discrediting them in that regard as well. But they have a lot of bad contracts and we're just keeping it a bean. Mm-hmm. The Miami Heat have just completely underperformed with the personnel that they've had. And they've got just a bunch of guys who are just simply not playing up to – up to their ability and it's yeah. making them look a lot worse than I think they actually are. I think that the there's two factors to that. One is health. You know, they've had a lot of a lot of injuries uh it, it, the lineup hasn't been real stable, let's put it that way. You know, Bam has been healthy, which is good, and uh Hero and Butler have been pretty healthy. This has been a really healthy year for Butler uh, considering his last few years. But outside of that, they've had a lot of injuries to, you know, naggy injuries to, you know, the Lowry's been hurt, you know, uh, Oladipo, we know, like just some of these players have been in and out of the lineup a lot and I, that, that hurts. But I think the biggest disappointment is Tyler Hero stepping into the starting role and not taking it up a notch, right? He's averaging, it, it's about the same, but it's slightly less points this year than he he was last year uh his minutes are up you know significantly his shooting percentage is down his three-point percentage is down um it's just you know you expected him to take maybe another leap and maybe take some of the scoring burden some of the 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 ball handling weight off of lowry and butler and we just haven't seen it and he hasn't been there defensively either, and that was kind of always the problem. That was a problem with him last year in, in some of the playoff games is he he couldn't be on the floor at the same time um, as Lowry because they really couldn't guard anybody. Lowry was just 
slow, unathletic. I mean, the dude's 30, what, 38 now is he? I mean, he's he's getting up there in age, so it, it, it is what it is. But, I mean, how old? Let's see. Now i got to see how old Lowry is. How old is Lowry? Yeah, he's 30. He's, he's 30. He just turned 37. So, I mean, like, he's not... He's not LeBron. I'm sorry. And he's, you know, most people by this age are out of the league or, you know, they're uh, a glorified coach on the bench, you know, Udonis Haslam. So, like, I think that's part of it is this team is aging in the wrong places and they've had injuries and then the, the star players just haven't stepped up. But, yeah, it's a, good, I mean, it's a good pick. Just to kind of piggyback off the Tyler Hero thing, the only reason why I guess I'm not as disappointed in him is because everything we saw last season indicated that starting was never optimal for him. Yeah. Everything that we saw from last season indicated when he started, he played worse, and when he came off the bench, he was arguably their second-best player on any given mm-hmm. night. Yeah. Like, that was just what was presented to us. And for anybody that wants to pretend like that's that's not the case, let's talk about how much discourse there was last season in terms of comparing him to Jordan Poole last year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Jordan Poole is in a similar circumstance in terms of having more of a starting role this season as opposed to coming off the bench. And although his productivity is not that much lower than last season, the efficiency is definitely down for Jordan Poole, stood out for a lot of people. But the overall productivity isn't that different. But his effectiveness doesn't pop out or it's not as... It doesn't supersede what he did last year in terms of what he was able to do coming off the bench as opposed to starting right. this season. And that's what made us worry about Tyler Hero getting the bag. That's what made us worried about, oh, now Jordan Poole is up and he's projected to get similar, if not once more money coming off of a finals run, right? Yep. This That is the issue with the microwave scorer like, like archetype is that the microwave score archetype and the three-point score archetype both have this similar dichotomy if is, that is basically right. summarized as if they have one season where they completely snap. And it seems seems to always be uh, very properly placed. Yeah. If they have one season where they ball out, it gets them paid and they instantly regress. From a three-point mm-hmm. standpoint, God, Otto Porter psyched, the, uh, psyched out the Chicago Bulls. Hasn't been the same since. Mm-hmm. Duncan Robinson can't even play in games yeah. ever since getting the bag, right? Hey. Um, Once upon a time, dudes like Chandler Parsons kind of fell into this mm-hmm. uh, area as well. There's a bunch of dudes who fall into this pocket of being the three-point sniper that gets the bag and then falls off. Mm-hmm. The, the same thing happens with some of these microwave guys. Like I said, in recent memory, Tyler Hero and Jordan Poole fall into that category. I'm sure there's a handful of other guys that I'm maybe just blanking on right now because I don't think Jordan Clarkson like classifies. I think he still does his thing yeah, as a six-man. Yeah. But it's still it's still just the, the fact that those kind of archetypal guys have a ceiling they have a ceiling, they have a certain level of value that is replaceable in a way that makes it where setting high expectations for potential <laughs> development is wishy-washy. I think Jordan Poole, over a four-season uh, stint with the Warriors, has hit whatever that peak is. Agree. And unfortunately, I don't think there's any further development for that, and I think the same can be said for Tyler Hero. Yep, good points. Those are all good points. All right, back to me. My my next disappointment, and I probably is gonna be a disappointment for you too, and that's the Orlando Magic. Man, uh, I don't feel as bad about this in terms of what we saw when they had a full healthy squad, and we talked a lot about how injuries can affect a season. Um, but they had a lot 
a lot of injuries, um, particularly to their backcourt. Um, you know, Paolo and, and Franz, they, you know, they played the majority of the games. Paolo was injured for a short stretch, but and, and they've been fantastic, right? And they look good on, when they're on the court together. Um, but uh, Cole Anthony is only going to play probably 60 games. Markel Fultz, same, maybe 60 games. Mo Wagner, 56 games. Wendell Carter Jr., 56 games. Jalen Suggs, 50, 50 games. Gary Harris, 48. Like, they have just... Their lineup has been uh, just a mix match of 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 backcourt. Like they they have a lot of talent, but it, we, nobody's been able to stay healthy. Uh, and uh, of course, our, mine and your like I, I would say we're the last two people on Jonathan Isaac Island to take a a a, a, a bit from Bill Simmons. But like you know, he he comes back, he looks good, and he immediately hurts himself, and he's had to have season-ending season surgery on an abductor muscle, which just sounds terrifying. So it's like, you know, this team, I think, next year, I'm going to be on this bandwagon again because I think they're going to be a playoff team next year. But it just was unfortunate because they had some momentum. They, I mean, they played, they beat Boston twice. They beat Boston in Boston. They, they've played a lot of teams really, really, really close, but... Uh, they went through a huge stretch at the beginning of the season and then in the middle of the season where they just couldn't win games because there was one point where I think they only had six players uh, with the ability to play. Or, sorry, uh, seven players that were able to play on in one night. So that's rough. It's hard to win games when you when you don't have a bench. But, yeah, my, I was really bummed by the, the Orlando season. Yeah, I think for me, Orlando obviously can't be too disappointing because of the fact that injuries riddled them. So obviously they're on the list, but I don't think they're as disappointing just to the just to the fact that we can point to it. But I think there's a lot of positives. I wanna I wanna kind of piggyback off of something that you said. There's a lot of positives that can come from this. Obviously, Paulo's rookie year, despite the efficiency not being that great, if you contextualize it, it's actually not as bad as it seems. This is not a team with a ton of spacing by any means. And the point guards themselves were in and out of the lineup as part of all these injuries that you mentioned, which not having a point guard obviously impacts the spacing by itself, but also the fact that the point guards are not great three-point shooters. Yeah, It's right. its own separate battle. But I also think it can't be slept on that Paulo Bancaro is having like one of the best free-throw merchant seasons mm-hmm. possible, right, in terms of not just a rookie, but like, NBA players in general, right? For him to be averaging just over seven free throw attempts a game as a rookie, that means he's getting the whistle. And that also means that he's playing aggressive and he's playing downhill. And he's using the one thing that brought him to the dance more than anything is the fact that his physical frame allows him to create opportunities for himself. And that includes getting to the line where he's hitting, like, I think around or above at least 70 something percent, which is good for a rookie in terms of, again, a rookie getting to the line that frequently. Um, Franz Wagner, I think, yeah, definitely has taken a step forward. I think the vet, the the more and more that uh, Mosey is instituting this on-ball repertoire for him is huge mm-hmm. because I think that he does need to be more of an on-ball presence if he is going to become one of the better young wings in the league. I think the only way that you can take that step, a la Mikhail Bridges, for example, I think is a great example of this. He was already showing certain signs mm-hmm. of this yeah. in Phoenix earlier this year, but it kind of took until 
Brooklyn really kind of let the reins go in terms of allowing him to be an on-ball presence that we saw certain things from a developmental standpoint that we didn't know Mikael mm, Bridges yeah. had in his bag. You know what I mean? And I think Franz Wagner has a lot of similar capabilities from a, as a two-way uh, two way forward that a guy like Mikael has. Yep. And so I think that that's something that's good to experiment. I love the Markel Fultz story for this season. I love the fact that for a good little portion of the beginning of the year, Bol Bol was like one of the most ex- yeah. exciting players to keep track of right and he was like a legitimate most improved player con um candidate for a good majority of the year there's a lot of things that orlando can still build off that i'm very excited to see and brian i don't think either one of us were necessarily wrong in believing that there was like a postseason birth potentially on this team as an injury riddled team only four years back my chicago Bulls in terms of making the play-in tournament yeah. That's a team that also beat the Boston Celtics a handful of times this year, healthily, by the way. Yeah. And they're a team that they're a team that has been very strong defensively this year. Yeah. Which yeah. does translate long term. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to still see as promising for them. But I, I, I will give you that as well. This, this was a team I was very high on. Unfortunately, they weren't able to kind of seal the deal for me. We'll talk about a team a little bit later that was surprising that did seal the deal for you, boy. But, um, <laughs> awesome. But Orlando, Orlando, yeah, definitely one of those teams that I think we should keep an eye out on. Because this year might not have went as, as maybe me and you would have hoped. But they they've got a ton to build on. Do you have a do you have another uh, disappointment, dude? I don't understand how the Portland Trailblazers are allowed to be this bad. Ugh, I don't get yeah. it. I don't get it. I understand. I, look, I did I did an article on them recently, <clears throat> so I have a little bit more background behind it to a certain extent. They're like the seventh youngest team in the NBA. Mm-hmm. The three oldest players are Damian Lillard, uh, Yusuf Nurkic, and Jeremy Grant. They're one of those teams that's trying to play the double timeline uh, game that the that the Golden State Warriors have kind of tried to patent yeah. by having like one of the youngest teams in the league while still claiming to be trying to build a championship roster around Damian Lillard. And to not do anything progressive for Damian Lillard at the trade deadline felt disrespectful. Damian Lillard should be in normal seasons one of the runaway candidates as a as a, a first team All NBA guard, and he, I don't and and people are skeptical about the fact that he might not even make an All NBA team with the kind of career season he has had. They are disappointing because I feel as though, and I, I kind of said this in the article, but I'm going to kind of double down on it here. They are the most. They are one of the most disappointing teams in the NBA because I don't understand how the Portland Trailblazers can continue to fail Damian Lillard. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question, and I, this is this is where I'm going to pass you the baton, not just on Portland, but just the Damian Lillard discourse in general. Do you think that since Damian Lillard has been drafted, that what what is the last team you saw that you felt like the Portland Trailblazers genuinely built a championship contender around Damian Lillard for? Not the team that lucked into the Western mm-hmm. Conference Finals when nobody else expected it, right? Which would meant they had very a very low bar and definitely played above expectations. I'm talking about when's the last time you looked at a Damian Lillard-led team and you said the personnel around him was good enough to potentially win a championship. That's a good question. I mean, um, 
Yeah, I don't. I. I. It's maybe the one year that they went out, and uh, I don't know if it's the same year you're talking about. Um, but was it 2017? Is that when they went out and got? I'm, I'm trying to look at their their team stats here right now. Um, uh, 2017, 18. Was that the year that they? Uh, I don't know. I, I without looking at, but I, yeah, I'm with you. It's it, there's been like one season, and I kind of think that like, you know. So I, it's funny because I got into this conversation with uh, the guys from you know Ball Pod. I don't know if you ever listened to that. It's a Philly based podcast. Um, they're a funny duo. Um, I honestly don't know their names. Or, or, so the guy that was talking to me, I'm uh, I feel bad. Sorry, but um, you know, I mentioned like what is what is Dame doing staying here, right? Like, there's been trade rumors, and he's mentioned a hundred times how he's not going to ask for a trade. But, like, do they want to contend? Not, not even do they want to contend for Damian, um, but do they want to contend? Is Lillard their guy, or is he not? Because at this point, like you said, like, okay, they went out and got Jeremy Grant. Big ups. They traded McCollum, right? Um, that, that made made sense right where they were at but i don't this team is like are they they just decided to tank the last three weeks of the season why why like what are you doing like as a franchise i really have a hard time understanding as a franchise what they want to be do you want to build a contender around damian lillard or do you want to rebuild because what they're trying to do now is is it seems like they're trying to do a half-ass rebuild and that doesn't make sense. You can't half-ass a rebuild. You can't consistently get the seven, nine, ten picks, you know, in the draft and expect to to eventually hit a home run, right? I mean, we, we see people strike out at the top of the draft all the time, right? So, I, I don't really, I don't really understand what they're doing. I mean, when you just go down the list, moving off of Josh Hart did not did not indicate. You know, a win now move. No, that acquiring was... guys like Matisse Thibel and um, I mean, geez, they, the way they just moved this entire season is just weird. But they got Matisse Thibel and Sierra Little was playing a little bit more, which I'm not super mad at. Kevin Knox, um, like they just, I don't get it. I don't understand because this is this is this is the real issue, Brian. You can't be the team that is focused on internal development and grabbing a bunch of young guys when we know that if you're a if you're one of the 10 youngest teams in the NBA you typically are not considered as a title contender right, right? Yeah, people no. are even still people are even still skeptical about the championship equity of Memphis and they're like the fourth youngest team in right. the NBA and they have like an as have a legit all-star candidate all-star guard on their team Shagos Alexander for the Oklahoma City Thunder. They're they're the youngest team in NBA um, in the NBA right now, and everybody basically poo pooed them as going to be in this position in terms of being right back in the lottery again. And they're a team that could make the playoffs this year, but no one expects very much from them, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a team that, based on the way it's constructed, falls under the category of a team that you're not going to expect very much from because of how youthful they are. Yet you preach that you want to put a winning team around Damian Lillard. But the only way to do that if your team is going to be this youthful is to be able to acquire other talent that actually fits for a win-now culture, but you're also a team that never spins into the luxury tax. Ever, yeah, So you're ever. trying to have your cake and eat it too, and it doesn't make any sense. You can't be this team that says you want to go to the playoffs, 
and you you want to go to the playoffs and be a championship contender, but not spending the luxury tax, but then say that you want to build a contender around Damian Lillard, and the only thing that you do in terms of what you do internally, since you're not going to spend the money, is just keep getting young dudes yep. who are not ready to win yet. Yeah, yeah. You can't do both. No, I yeah, I it's it's baffling. It's a baffling. <clears throat> it's a baffling um, situation, and then you know the Phil Knight, the owner, or the, the is it Phil Knight still the owner? Whoever the Knights that own it, um, there was talk of them selling the team, and then he said, "Absolutely not, we're not selling the team." It's like, well, then are you going to do something with this team? Um, yeah. Um, I, for sake of time, uh, I'm going to skip the because the, we're going to we're going to run out of time here. You've got to go soon, so I want to move on to biggest surprises of the season. And I'm just—I I don't know what's on your list, but I am just going to talk about one on mine, so we can so we can move through this quickly. And that are the teams that decided not to tank. Now we just talked about the Trailblazers, who is very a very disappointing season. Uh, and here's the other thing. So real quick, going back to the the Blazers, I went and listened to our preseason predictions, and we both had them in the playoffs, and they like we both had them um, like. I would say is a play in team more a contender for that six spot. I don't think we thought they were going to be a top four team, but you know that they're, they, they fell out and they decided to tank. But what surprised me was the teams that really decided to not really tank. Um, and this is kind of, I don't, I don't know how to view this. So I'm thinking of Indiana. I'm thinking of Utah and I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, Washington. So they tried to play this season out, right? I mean, those three teams tried to play the season out. I don't understand why Indiana, I mean, maybe it was just they had too much talent to not tank, but they did not, it wasn't even crossing their mind about trading Buddy Heald or Miles Turner. Maybe the asking price was too high. Maybe people weren't looking for for those type of players. I doubt it. But they, those, you know, that team stayed in contention for a lot longer than they probably should have. Same thing can be said for Utah. I mean, they were they were uh, pretty much masters of their own destiny for the, until the last month, and then it seemed like they started to just pack it in. And it's confusing to me. So why did you play so hard at the beginning of the year? Was it about the talent, or was it one of those things where, oops, we're winning games, let's just see how far we can ride this, and then eventually the wheels fell off? I'm shocked because, yes, they have a chance in the lottery, both these teams do, but... They, and then on the flip side, like we both thought Detroit was going to be good, and then they decided as soon as K got hurt, they were like, "Nope, we're shutting this thing down." <laughs> but which that makes sense to me though, right? I mean, K got hurt. Why are you? you know, there's no reason to win. You know, there's no because re- it's not going to. You're probably not going to be able to win. Your best players hurt. Um, there's no point in it. Um, we're going to trade. We're going to trade some of these pieces, get some, get some assets in return, and and you know, sink the ship. But like. I, yeah, I just don't really understand, you know, what Utah and specifically Indiana were doing. Your thoughts? I think you make a great point. I mean, Utah and Indiana are definitely the teams that stand out because they're the teams that surprise us the most at the beginning of the season where we were like, wait, are these teams making the playoffs? Like, what, what's mm-hmm. up with that? Because, like, I don't know if that's, like, the most intelligent thing for you to be doing right. considering the fact that you're still kind of making it work in terms of just your team building, right? Um, but I'm not super disappointed in Indiana because I think the personnel is there. I mean, at the end of the day, if they were going to decide, and they eventually did, to extend Miles Turner, that was going to be a pillar of your franchise. Obviously, you have Tyrese Halliburton, who was playing at an all-NBA caliber level before he went down, and we saw how important he was after he got injured because this team fell That's off right. the face yeah. of the earth after he went down. 
Um, ben, Benedict Matherin, you know, looked like one of the better rookies in the league when we first kicked mm-hmm. off. He came back down to earth a little bit, which I think a lot of people kind of expected to an extent. Yeah, rookie wall, rookie um, wall. Right, of course. But I think Indiana was just <clears throat> one of those teams that I, I'm I'm sorry, Brian, but the, one of the things that just kind of stood out to me a lot this season was that the young teams just came out ready to play. Yeah. They just came out ready. And I think the up-tempo style of the NBA allowed some of those teams with the young guns to just let it fly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that allowed them to kind of hit the ground running. And eventually, 82 games, that, that's why they say that it's it's such a big deal for God for for guys to be able to get through a, a yeah. year like like these in general and i'm talking about like a full 82 game schedule because it can humble you with time and this is one of the things about young rosters that's what the same thing i mentioned with the portland trailblazers like when you are a young team these kind of things happen which is why we don't high expectations for you before the season starts in the first place yeah. utah fits that mold even more as the island of misfit toys is what we deemed them before the season <laughs> right. started with all the different guys, the hodgepodge of different dudes that they put together and turn Laurie Markin into an all-star. And I think that he has the ability to maybe maybe duplicate some of the things we saw this mm-hmm. season. But, like, he he he's had, like, an all-time level season from an efficiency standpoint. That's something that I don't think they could have, you know, prepared for. But I think that's something that I also think is probably good for their franchise moving forward. So maybe them not necessarily choosing the bottom out early wasn't the worst thing in the world. Right. And they still got a ton of draft capital this season through the trade deadline. So I think Utah is sitting pretty a little bit. The team that doesn't make any sense in terms of not tanking for me is the Wizards. I don't understand yeah. it. This whole trying to be competitive thing while knowing you're not good enough doesn't make a lick of sense to me. You got to get better at not drafting forwards because you did you dig, you dig dug yourself a hole to the point that you had to trade Rui Chamora, you still have Denny Avdia, and you have Corey Kisper, who both play the same position. You're stuck in a situation where you might have to give Christos Porzingis some serious bread this offseason because he right. low-key, underratedly had an all-star caliber year this season. And guess what? You're going to pigeonhole yourself where you're going to have to pay Christoph, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to pay Kyle, and you're not going to have any more money, and you're running this team back again. Yes. So the best thing you could have done was incentivize the rest of your team um, by saying, look, bro, we're not going to win this year, but we're trying to position ourselves to be able to win long term. Look, this team is locked in. So the best thing that we can do is get a rookie, build your team moving forward by trying to get yourself a top five pick. This draft is way better than next draft. So bottoming out next year isn't going to do you any favors. And for some reason, in general, the, the Wizards are just kind of cool with mediocrity. I, and I don't understand yeah. it at all. They're, like, good with just making the playoffs, and this is one of those seasons where, like, they're not even going to do that. So what actually is the plan? Right. They're this the is e- one of those years that explains, like, that makes them have to look in the mirror and say, okay, so what actually is the plan? They're the uh, they're the East Coast Blazers, apparently. Literally. Yeah. I literally, in my most recent episode, I actually compared the two because if you go down the list mm-hmm. in terms of comparing the two teams, they are oddly similar for a lot of reasons. And it makes those two teams frustrating to watch because they might not be good enough to say they're championship contenders, but there's a lot of for elements sure. for both teams that say they should be making the postseason and be giving people fits yeah. year in and year out, and they're not doing that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that Wizards, I mean, even if you just just look outside of Beal, like Porzingis had a career year. He finally looked like the player that we all like thought he could be or hoped he could be. Um, Kuzma, I think, is just underrated undervalued at this point i would love yeah. to see him on a contender um you know it, it just it amazes me and, and like you said and they've missed they've had some big whiffs on drafts 
you know, you know Johnny Davis and and Denny Avja. It just it's been it's been it's been terrible. Um, but yeah, uh, so let's go back to you though. It's your turn. What what are some surprises um, you had this season? Come on, Brian. The, the easy one. The easy one. The Sacramento Kings. Yeah. And, and for me, for me, this this might not be a surprise for me outside of the fact that forty eight wins is insane. I didn't have them as a third seed. I told everybody this on the podcast earlier in the season, but uh, I've been pushing this agenda You're on a, all year. You, you, that's 100% true. I've been true. pushing this agenda since the preseason. Yep. And I kind of want to keep harping on this because this is one of those things where I paraded around from podcast to podcast telling people, look, bro, I don't know what it is, but the Kings look like they make sense, and teams who make sense usually play very well over the stretch of 82 games. They get Mike Brown as a culture setter for them to come in and empower guys to be aggressive and play to their potential. De'Aaron Fox has a career year. DeMontis Sabonis is the hub that makes it all work. They are literally the best offense in NBA history right now. Mm-hmm. I thought I still think that the Malik Monk signing is underrated. Again, I mentioned it kind of within the context of Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox have played together. There's a familiarity there. Mm-hmm. But I also think that camaraderie is just something that I think the Kings desperately needed. Because this is a team that's been discombobulated and disgruntled for years. And I think just establishing a more positive locker room has really invited a a real chance for them to feel like they're a good basketball team. And right. therefore, they've been playing like a good basketball team. You acquire dudes like Kevin Herter, who's now more empowered, mentioned on Zach Lowe's podcast that it's a double-edged sword playing with Trey Young because he's a guy that gets you the ball, but he's also a guy that pounds the ball so much that you kind of have to be patient and he mm-hmm. takes away from your opportunities. He's been given more than enough opportunity with the Sacramento Kings, and he's having a big-time year. Keegan Murray, I know he seemed like the the obvious yet maybe you shouldn't have pick for the Sacramento Kings at four, but he's fit in perfectly what what they need and what they've been able to do so far this season. They can't defend for a lick. I'll give them that. Yeah. Which is the crazy part considering that Mike uh, Mike Brown yeah. comes from the defensive coordinator for the Golden State Warriors. That's kind of the weird part. But I think the fact that he has understood that look his deep his his team his team is not built to defend at a at a top five level. But if, he, if they can score with the best teams in the NBA and they play together doing so, they feel confident enough to beat anybody. And they've been able to do that on the back of De'Aaron Fox being like the clutchest player in the NBA. Yeah. So, like I said, I, I mean, I'm not going to toot my own horn here too crazy because, of course, I didn't expect them to win 48 to 50 games. But I'm sorry. We have to credit competency. And for the first time in a couple – in the first time in almost two decades, the Sacramento Kings look competent and it paid dividends. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, you could you you know, we I went back and like I said, I listened to our, our preseason podcast and you 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 convinced me to put them into my playoff predictions. You know, we didn't have them this high. We had them going over. We had them making the playoffs. We thought the play in game, not the third best team in the West. Oh, and man. you know, a lot you know I was a huge De'Aaron Fox fan. You know, I, I wanted to see him get traded out of Sacramento. Um, I thought they probably should have traded him instead of Halliburton because it looked. I thought, in my opinion, they, it was a rebuild. Like they, they need to start over. Um, and, and it seems like no, just what we needed from De'Aaron was somebody to just trust him with the offense. And um, you know, I'm just going to segue this into the awards uh, because my pick for Coach of the Year is Mike Brown, um, and we'll get your pick here in a minute too. But I think that Sacramento, the they. Literally, 
would not be this good without Mike Brown. I'm not a Mike Brown guy. I didn't like him as a coach. I thought he was a good assistant. I am was not when he was the Lakers coach. I was not happy with that. I don't think he did a good job necessarily with the Cavs either. Um, but it's clear that he ha- has taken his experience uh, at the different stops he's been at as, like you said, the defensive coordinator for the 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 Warriors and. Guess what? The Warriors are missing him this year. Their defense, the Warriors' defense, is terrible, um, and he's unleashed. Though I think Deer and Fox, he's he's basically said, "This is your team. You are the star. We're only going to go as far as you and Dantas allow us to go. So you two play together, learn how to do it, and their pick and roll has just been unstoppable. Sabonis is if 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 it wasn't for uh, Jokic. I, we might be talking about him as the best passing big man in the league. Honestly, he's that good. He 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 sees the floor amazingly. Um, and it, I just yeah. So my pick for coach of the year is Mike Brown. Um, what's your pick for coach of the year? I got Mike too. Um, honestly, I was kind of torn between. Uh, I mean, every coach that I had in my top three come out comes out of the Western Conference. It was him, Taylor Jenkins, and yeah. Mike Dagnall for uh, Mark Dagnall for uh, the Oklahoma City Same. Thunder. I think all of them have been able to do different things for their team, but all under different circumstances that definitely propelled them into this tier in terms of how we discuss them uh, this season. Taylor Jenkins had to deal with a lot this season, like the John Morant fiasco. Dylan Brooks obviously has been the talk of the town as of late. Jaron Jackson missed time. Steven Adams has missed time. Desmond Bain has missed time. This team has struggled in terms of just being able to keep guys on the floor. They won 50 games in the second seed in yeah. the NBA. I mean, second seed in the Western Conference. Regardless, obviously, Mike Brown. I think. I think when when you bring a team, <laughs> like this can't be understated. When you bring a team from the depths of the depths, like you did, like for this Sacramento Kings team, you're gonna be heavily regarded for this award, yeah. right? When you when you talk about the playoff draw for the Sacramento Kings, when you talk about just a lot of feelings that people had on the Sacramento Kings just a season ago, for them to be not only a competent basketball team, but to play this well, I mean, would have to be considered to this level. And then for the Oklahoma City Thunder with Mark Dagnall, I think the biggest thing for them is, I mean, just everybody on that team is developing smoothly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Josh Giddy has obviously gotten better over the course of the season. Jalen Williams vaulted himself into being in a real contender for the rookie of the year race. Uh, Shea Gilles Alexander has jumped into arguably like first team all NBA level at yeah. the guard position. They've got a couple of guys that have even like reinvigorated their career, like Isaiah Joe, who couldn't buy a minute <laughs> right. for the Philadelphia 76ers, and now he's the best three point shooter in the NBA, right. right? Yeah. So those are all the three guys that I definitely consider, but like, like you mentioned, I think Mike Brown has it locked up. Maybe it's not as safe as I think it is, but I think that the Kings have just completely outplayed anything that people could have expected this season. And the biggest change to me, outside of some of the personnel that they had this offseason, was the fact that they brought a competent voice into the into yeah. the, uh, the front office slash onto the coaching staff that they haven't had in God knows how long. Yeah, I uh, agree. All right, so sixth man of the year, I think, is a two-man race. And I'm going with Malcolm Brogdon. Um, I think... I mean, he's been fantastic for Boston, and you know he's he's won them a couple games. Um, yeah, so my sixth man is Malcolm Brogdon. I don't think there's a lot to say. Do you, are you going Brogdon or are you going uh, another way? 
I got a manual quickly. You got basically. quickly? Okay. Yeah. And I don't think that there's too much of a discrepancy between the two of them. Brogdon has definitely played really well, and obviously being on one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference propels him a little bit. But I just think Emmanuel quickly, Emmanuel quickly has just been huge for them. And it's also been like defensively, which is weird, mm-hmm. um, considering the circumstances. But Emmanuel quickly has just played much better this year. He's been a big part of what the New York Knicks need in order to solve what their biggest problem has been like i've mentioned this on plenty podcasts leading up to this point but dating back to that series against the atlanta hawks the new york knicks have been desperately trying to solve shot creation at the guard position they got Derek rose they had they they tried to stint with kimball walker obviously now they're in a position where they acquired jalen brunson they developed in um emmanuel quickly they've empowered quentin grimes right all of these different things and now they fully optimize this guard position in a way that makes them much more of a threat in the postseason because it's no longer dump the ball to Julius and watch him work, right? Because that's what killed them in that series against Atlanta. It wasn't the fact that Julius played bad, because he definitely did, but Mm -hmm. you're not going to play... There's only a handful of players that are going to excel in those moments when they are the only means of real productive offense, because R.J. Barrett just wasn't there, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the postseason. And from a guard perspective, they had nobody that was putting pressure on the rim. They had nobody that was shooting efficiently three-point line. There was nobody that was really a threat from the, in the backcourt. And it made guys like Trey Young um, a lot easier. They gave them a lot easier of a night because they could strictly focus yeah. on the offense without worrying about the fact that defensively they were, they were giving up anything because they weren't. Now they've got a platoon of guys that can do damage. And Emmanuel quickly is like one of the bigger contributors to that. Yeah, I, I think that it's a kind of like you said. I, I think it's a two man race. I wouldn't be surprised if quickly wins it. He's kind of come on a, a little bit strong in the second half of the season too. Uh, all right, rookie of the year. Uh, I do think this is uh, an obvious pick. I don't think you're going to go crazy on this. Uh, you mentioned Jalen Williams, Benedict Matherin. Those are probably the two, three in some order. But uh, it's Paolo. Paolo's rookie of the year. It's Paolo. I mean, it's Paolo. Jalen Williams is sneakily somewhere in that top three. Whether you have him two or three is interesting. And I think Walker Kessler actually bumped Benedict Matherin out. I'm Mm. sorry, Walker has just been too OD defensively this year. Like, I I was joking with TV on uh, the the Hitch of Free Throws podcast about the idea that, like, maybe we might need to rename last summer, like, this past summer's trade as, like, the Walker-Kessler trade. Because, I mean, the dude has completely outplayed Rudy Gobert offensively, and then defensively the dude's been a beast for Utah. So whether you interchange those guys is completely up to you, but I think Paolo Bancaro just simply with his responsibilities, the circumstances around Orlando and the fact that he still has been able to be this dominant. Agreed. I still think it's him. I still think it's him. Um, and then, and then so defensive player of the year, I think in my opinion, it's pretty much set in stone too, but we'll get your thoughts. I think it's triple J. Uh, I, I mean, I just, he, his impact has just been, uh, what we kind of always thought it could be if he could just stay healthy and stay on the court. And uh, this has been his most effective year yet. Yeah, I mean, the the, the two-man race is obviously between him and Brooke Lopez, right? They're, they're the two popular names that come up. I've also 
I also went with Triple J uh, personally. I just think that what he's been able to do for a team that does not have a ton of defensive personnel mm -hmm. is insane. The fact that he's able to backpack a defense like this where the only other guys you can say are really considered defenders are probably Desmond Bain and Dylan Brooks. Yep. And a lot of what they're able to do in terms of being physical on the perimeter has a lot to do with the, the fact that they have a physical presence in Jaron Jackson Jr., especially as a shot blocker, behind them. On top of the fact that also when Steven Adams was healthy, that really was a front court that mm -hmm. not many people wanted to funnel into. So it gave a lot of uh, perspective for the guys on the perimeter in terms of, oh, I can be able to be a little bit more rough out here. I can be a little bit more jumpy and things like that because I know that Jaren's got my back in terms of being able to swat your, uh, your layup into the third row and so on and so forth. Brooke Lopez's case to me is just the fact that the dude has just kind of been insane in a lot of weird ways. Mm -hmm. He's got a lot of the similar rim defense stats while also like having like one of the craziest shot contested years like yeah. of all time like the dude is like lapping people in terms of how many how many shots he's contesting not just at the rim but like in general um this season. <laughs> right. um the only thing that i think hurts there's the only thing that hurts jaron to me is i think people are going to point to the fouls, fouls yeah. and it's fair um also i think games played probably to an extent mm -hmm. and the thing that i think hurts brooke is the fact that Giannis Antetokounmpo arguably could be in the DPOY conversation yeah. as well. Maybe not as much, but I think he could also be in the conversation as well. Pair that with the fact that Drew Holiday is probably the best defensive guard in the league. Chris Middleton, when healthy, has been solid. Jay Crowder, who they acquired at the trade deadline, obviously falls into the, uh, a very solid level of their defensive personnel. Javon Carter also falls into that 3 and D mode. Like They're just a team that's built where you're like, yeah, they should be a top five defense. Yeah. And so backpacking it isn't like as I don't want to say it's not as impressive, but they have the personnel where in a, in a typical year too. Like one thing that we people don't really talk about that much anymore because I feel like a lot of people downplay the rebound. Um, but rebounds are important, and especially defensive rebounds. And um, you know, I typically would say like, well, Brooke Lopez is not a great rebounder. In fact, like they they made a joke last night on TNT. He didn't have a single rebound in in the game last night. Um, but Jaron Jackson isn't a, a great rebounder either. Um, they're both averaging a, a, about six and a half rebounds a game, which is pretty low for a big man. And especially uh, when you think of you know like Dennis Rodman's defensive player of the years were based on him grabbing like 16 boards a game right and and you know obviously he was a good uh, d defender but I just think that rebounds are just not thought of as important as they are and d the thing is is defensive rebounds are they're important because it means that the, the possession ended at a stop because you got the rebound right I mean right. it makes sense but um yeah that's those are just like I, I don't know I I think it's just Jaron's ability to switch and just play uh, pretty much positionless basketball to you is, is phenomenal. All right, let's go to MVP. Um, so this is, I know, controversial. I think, you know, last year I had Embiid and games played hurt him, uh, and, and it seems like it might hurt him this year. Luckily for him, Giannis and uh, Jokic have both missed games too, and um, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know if we're going to see Jokic – play the rest of the regular season um because he came back and played and he did not look is is he's hurt still so i think they're probably going to rest him up for the playoffs um it's Embiid to me Embiid's the mvp i thought he was the mvp last year i i 
if I was starting a team, I probably would pick you know, the Joker over him, uh, honestly, uh, because I just think there's a lot more offensively, and you can build a team around uh, Jokic a lot easier than you can Embiid. But to me, there's no more. Pl- there's no player that's more important to his team. I don't think right now you can't say that they need a team more than Embiid. I mean, he they, night in, night out, he carries this this load defensively and offensively, um, and. I point to that because, you know, Giannis is the best player in the world. I think we would agree on that. To me, he's the best player in the world. But Giannis also has a far superior team. Um, now, granted, Middleton's hurt, but Drew Holiday's the truth, man. That dude is finally getting recognized for the player he's always been. And we mentioned this in the playoffs last year. I just think Drew is that dude. Um, so... And they have he has good Lopez is in contention for defensive player of the year. Ain't nobody talking about any other awards for anybody else on on Philly. So in my mind, you know he's had to be a, a, a dominant player offensively and defensively. He had some just amazing blocks uh, in that game last night. Um, yeah, so I'm picking Embiid. Who you got? I got Jokic still, bro. Yeah. I, I feel like I understand where everybody's point is about Embiid, and obviously recently he's made a much better push for it. But, bro, I'm sorry, but it's just like I can't look at what the Denver Nuggets have been able to do. Like from a offensive standpoint, like this, like especially in a year of this kind of volatility from a from a insane stat pad season, or not stat pad, but like. With the statistical burst that we've had this right. season, what the Denver Nuggets are doing is dominant, like legitimately. And the fact that Aaron Gordon is having a career season, the fact that uh, Jamal Murray is back and prov- uh, providing a very competent play at the point guard position, but I think Nikola Jokic has almost in a way taken the point guard position over to a certain extent. KCP is having a career year. Th- like, th- like, Jokic... I don't know if you agree with this, but like I feel like Joel Embiid has superior talent yeah. on both sides of the floor to uh, yeah. the Denver Nuggets. I agree. And Nikola Jokic has them clicking at like an insane offensive level while not sinking their defense. And the fact that he's able to make them so dominant offensively, it provides much more opportunity on defense for the other guys to kind of play above their talent level. And that's why they've also been at least competent defensively so far this season. So I think the biggest thing with Jokic to me is that when you when you use the words most valuable, I look I look at the circumstances of these teams and I say, which team could survive Mm. if this guy mm. were to go down for a significant period of time. And to me, I just think that it's Jokic because this team, I mean, A, this team completely falls off when Jokic steps off the floor. Now, yeah. granted, when he steps off the floor, there's a lot of all-bench units that come out, so I'm not going to completely let the numbers skew right, right. there. Yeah. But at the same time, this these teams, like, I just don't think that when you look at both of them, I, I, I see a world where with James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris, um, on the floor, uh, Shake Milton, DeAnthony Melton. I think that team is still relatively solid if you had to miss mm. Joel Embiid for 15, 20 games. I don't know if I feel similarly as confident about the Denver Nuggets without a guy like Nikola Jokic, especially when you consider the kind of influence yeah. he has offensively. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely up for grabs. 
if you want me to tell you the truth, I have Nikola Jokic as my winner, but if I had to predict who I thought was genuinely going to win, like where the votes are going to go, yeah. I think it is Embiid. I agree. And we're yeah. just doing this strictly off of who do we think is going to win versus who we think is deserving of winning or who we think should win. Yeah. I think Embiid's going to win it because, A, I think the runner-up narrative is just kind of kicking in <laughs> yeah. full gear right now. And I also just think that recency bias is going to flood um, in Joel Embiid's favor. Now, maybe maybe that's also up for grabs considering everybody's on the, oh, you ducked Nikola Jokic's uh, smoke last game right. or what, you know, whatever. So that's also up for debate as well. But I genuinely think that recency bias and the narrative around the whole second place thing the last two years yeah. is going to lean in Joel Embiid's Great. favor. I that when you talk about his influence on an offense and specifically just his influence on the floor in terms of what the other players are able to do because of him, there is much more creation both offensively and de- defensively from de- from Nikola Jokic as opposed to Joel Embiid, like from a personnel standpoint. Like I think that Nikola Jokic provides more in terms of being able to uplift the teammates around him as opposed to Joel Embiid. I think Joel... This is one of those things that I call like, well, not, I don't want to say I call it that, but I feel this is a Styles makes fight kind of yeah. thing. This is one of those things, whatever your cup of tea is. If you're one of those people that views the center position as dominance, physicality, just pops out off the screen in terms of just looking like a dude who should be an MVP, then it's Joel Embiid. If you're strictly going off of who you think you know leads in terms of advanced statistics, overall influence on the floor, uplifting teammates, the ability to change the game just with his own individual skill set, then it's, then it's a guy like Nikola Jokic. It really is dependent on what your flavor is, and that's kind of why this discourse around MVP has been so toxic is because it kind of just depends on like what you're interested yeah, in. Well, no, I agree. I agree. And But I, I, I mean... I don't honestly think that there's a wrong answer because I think mm-hmm. truly, I think if we're being honest, it's kind of one of those things where like there, ha- there should have been maybe, I don't know, like in the last, tw- in the last 20 years, five, six total MVPs. Right. I mean, because if you're talking about who's the best and most important player, like it was LeBron James for like 11 years. It's been Giannis probably the last four years. There was the year Steph years, right? Uh, and then Duncan and Shaq and maybe Kobe in a couple of those years. Like just being honest, like those, you know, that's kind of the way that I look at this. But um, all right, we are running out of time really fast. You got to go do some stuff, but let's get some uh, playoff predictions real fast. You're not going to go full full bore here. We're just talking. Who are you picking to go to the conference finals in uh, both conferences? We'll start in the Eastern Conference Finals. Give me your your picks, Eastern Conference Finals. Based on the standings right now, when would the Bucks and 76ers meet? They would be the it would be the conference finals. Cause that feels like the safe pick. And I want to see the series really bad. Like really bad. Mm-hmm. Um and I think I said this to you. If it wasn't on podcast, then I then I, I I've said this on my own podcast at bare minimum. I have this really weird feeling that the Celtics are not safe. Like, I have this weird feel, mm-hmm. especially with the fact that they were so dominant for the majority of the regular season and completely popped, like, to the point that, like, yeah, now they're, they're still the second seed in the, in the Eastern Conference, no disrespect to them, mm-hmm. but the fact that they were able to relinquish the lead that they had to the Milwaukee Bucks in such a fashion, I just have a weird feeling that, like, they are not safe. So I'm going to go with Milwaukee versus Philadelphia 76ers. If I had to pick a winner out of it, I'm taking Milwaukee. 
Yeah, that's kind of how I was leaning to. My biggest problem with that is, honestly, Boston has owned Philly, with the exception of last night, and they didn't even have Jalen Jalen Brown or Robert Williams. I mean, you can't really count on Robert Williams to play at all. I mean, at this point, um, and, you know, we talked, I've been the biggest Robert Williams booster. When he's on the court, that team is different. It doesn't, there's no two ways about it. With him, they are uh, really, really difficult to beat. Without him, they're, you know, a beatable team. Um, so I'm going to actually say I'm going to take Milwaukee Boston because I just don't like the way that Philadelphia has played. I think Philadelphia probably is a tougher matchup in the playoffs than we would, than they have been in the regular season. It's really hard to judge these, these regular season series, but, um, yeah, I'm I'm just gonna just to be different. I'll take Milwaukee, Boston, and in the West is man. This this one is tricky. This is the I dude. I have no idea, especially because as if things are going the way if they pan out, you know, top seeds advance. Denver, Phoenix is a second round series, so um, I guess you know I I picked Denver to come out of the West uh, at the beginning of the year, so I kind of have to stick with that. I feel like so I'm I'm gonna say. If things shake out the way they are now, this is this is this is this is wild. I'm, I know where this is going. I, I'm saying it's going to be Lakers versus Denver in the Western Conference Finals. Um, and you know me, I, I'm a Lakers fan, but I've been really hard on this team, and I I still am kind of worried about this team. But I just look like, and I think like, can they beat Memphis? Yeah. Can they beat Sacramento or Golden State? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I'm just you know, I'm picking I'm picking Lakers versus Denver, and I'm picking Denver. I think I'm still sticking with Denver, Milwaukee in the in the finals with Milwaukee winning it. That's been my pick all year. I'm not gonna not gonna divert from that. So yeah, what are your Western Conference thoughts? <laughs> it's it's hilarious because unfortunately, like I've been skeptical about them this entire year, and the more we get closer to the like the actual postseason, I'm like, wow, this bracket is shaking up very favorable. Not gonna lie. I have Phoenix coming out um, because I just think that Kevin Durant and Devin Booker are just too good. I just think they're just yeah. way too good and they're even relatively competent defensively in the postseason. It, it's wraps. Um, that other side is nasty, though. I mean, I mean, it's gross. <sighs> I think in a weird way, just because of the way. Nah, I can't do that. I think that Memphis. I think Memphis has the okay. Lakers. I have. Okay. Oh my god, this is so gross. I think if I had to pick a team, it would have to be Golden State, and that's so nasty because it's the same problem with the Lakers. It's like mm-hmm. nothing in the regular season indicates that they should be safe, but they're getting Wiggins back. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry is still a top five player in the NBA when right. healthy. Draymond Green has been quietly backpacking this defense despite the fact that their personnel defensively is mm-hmm. butt cheeks. And it's been so all season long, especially without Wiggs in. They might get GP2 back for the postseason. That's also a quiet thing that they could maybe get mm-hmm. um, rolling for them. And I just like the bracket they pulled. Now, the weird part about that is I'm also one of those believers that said I think the Sacramento Kings could get out the first round. So this kind of contradicts that to a certain extent. Because yeah. Sacramento's going to see Golden State in the first round, barring something bizarre happening in the next couple of days. Yeah. But I'll be completely transparent. I think it's either I think it's either Golden State or the Lakers, and it's just because this bracket is gross. Yeah, like this bracket on this side is nasty. It's in terms of the it's rough. That yeah, yeah, it's rough. I mean, yeah, there's a lot. The West is has not 
played up to par with the top of the East, but mm-hmm. one through ten, it's been a dogfight all year, all year. Mm-hmm. Um, Jay, it's been great. I mean, we went an hour and a half. We both got things we got to do. I could talk to you all night, like about the <laughs> NBA for sure. Anything else you want to say before we wrap this thing up? Yeah, man. I just want to continue to push this this agenda that like the NBA's parody this season has made it very easy to cover the league. Yep. I think the scary part about this year being as parody filled is we've had so much to talk about that it almost feels like we don't know where to start. Um, I know at least I personally felt that way where it's almost so much going on that we're just like, gosh, there's mm-hmm. so much that we could talk mm-hmm. about and pump yep. out in terms of content and stuff. So I don't think that anybody should take this stuff for granted. I especially think that with the new CBA being implemented, it's only going to get more interesting as the things continue to get added to the league. Right on. But more than anything, Brian, it's almost playoff time. Yeah, and, um, can't wait. That's big That's big for us, yeah. obviously, because that means more um, impactful content. Obviously, in terms of us, we've already discussed a little bit of what we plan on doing in terms of covering the postseason here on your podcast, which yep. I'm also excited about because last season was so exciting in terms of going round by round for that. Um, so definitely just stay tuned in terms of all the content because I think that, I mean, postseason time is when things start clicking the most. And postseason time is also when we're going to see the most competitive basketball there is. So Couldn't agree as more. nasty as these brackets look, as nasty as these brackets look, man, we are in for we are in for maybe one of the best postseasons we've had in like the last like decade for real. Agree, agree. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of Two Guys, One Hoop. Don't forget to check out Jay on multiple platforms. He's got a bunch of podcasts. Read his stuff. I'll link to it in the uh, in the bio. Um, Jay, it was great talking to you. We'll catch you on the flip side. Third, peace.